All right, the lights are on. That means we can start. It's uh, 1659. So I'm going to just take one minute, and the purpose is to introduce my colleague Brink Lindsay. Brink is the vice president for research here at Cato. He's a lawyer by trainer by training, but he's a deep thinking thinker on many issues. He's the author of a number of books. Most recently, one he's edited on reviving economic growth, policy proposals to bring that about, and he'll chair the session. Over to you, Brink. Thanks, Tom. Welcome to all of you to the uh, final panel uh, of Cato University, or as I like to think of it, the grand culmination and epic uh, climax of the whole four days, uh, where you've been nattering on about history and theory, uh, and now actually you get to deal with how all of those uh, uh, sort of big picture 30,000 feet things you've been uh, thinking about actually apply in the real world. Um, I will say uh, that there is something a little unsettling about uh, presiding over an earnest discussion of policy wonkdom uh, dur during the week that Donald Trump has surged ahead in the polls. It kind of feels like uh, earnest discussions of, I don't know, whatever people were discussing earnestly on the Titanic just as the iceberg loomed in view. <laughs> uh, but this is hardly the first time that, uh, that uh, people at Cato's deep faith in the power of ideas and reason has been tested. Uh, we <clears throat> plug on notwithstanding uh, and uh, hold to our faith uh, that in the end, uh, uh, even if truth doesn't always win, truth matters and good ideas matter and, and helped uh, and they're uh, uh, helping to uh, share those good ideas with others uh, is, uh, is a viable strategy for bringing about a better world. Uh, we have here three experts on three of the hottest uh, policy topics uh, of the day, uh, civil liberties in the drug war, trade, uh, and immigration. Um, in um, two of these areas, uh, trade and immigration, uh, we've seen a lot of policy progress. Uh, that is, we've, uh, we've had uh, relatively open immigration in recent decades relative to what we did for much of the 20th century, and that has produced a big backlash. Uh, the backlash is what's causing the controversy today. In trade policy, we have much freer uh, trade, much lower trade barriers today than we have at pretty much any point in U.S. history, uh, and that uh, together with uh, just economic progress, falling transportation and communications costs have helped to bring about uh, the globalized world that is freaking some people out and producing a backlash. Um, on the other side, uh, we have uh, uh, an area where we've had uh, terrible regress uh, in uh, <clears throat> the rise of mass incarceration uh, over recent decades, where uh, now the United States is uh, an appalling outlier uh, in the number of, uh, in the percentage of uh, its citizens it keeps in cages. Uh, but now there's a backlash against that in just recent years, and so some possibilities of, uh, of, of progress on criminal justice reform. Uh, so to uh, walk you through these uh, topics, uh, to either give you a broad overview of, of what they do in general or to discuss uh, some specific uh, topic of, uh, of current interest in their field, uh, I'm going to turn the, uh, the mic over quickly uh, to uh, my three colleagues. Uh, first is Tim Lynch, uh, who is the uh, director of the Project on Criminal Justice, uh, where he deals with issues like uh, the drug war, um, <clears throat> criminal justice reform, uh, 
militarization of police tactics, uh, et cetera. Uh, and today, uh, he will talk about uh, uh, the intersection of the drug war and civil liberties. Tim? Thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, as Brink said, my policy area at Cato is criminal justice, and there are many problems in the criminal justice area that we cover here at Cato. Uh, police misconduct, prosecutor misconduct, uh, unjust mandatory minimum sentencing. Uh, but my remarks today are going to focus on the drug war, because the drug war has been a disaster zone uh, for the Bill of Rights. And that's why we put so much emphasis on that uh, here at Cato. History tells us that whenever the government goes to war, civil liberties are in danger. Uh, the war status makes it easier for the government to rational, rationalize policies that would otherwise be unjustifiable. Uh, my drug war files are full of Orwellian uh, news stories. Uh, to give you one example, uh, one is about how U.S. Coast Guard ships are operating in the rivers of South America. Now, what are they doing that far south? Our coasts are way up here. <laughs> they're down here. And if you read the news stories, well, they're trying to catch drug smugglers. That's why they're down there. So there's like this weird stuff. And... Uh, but let's get to the problems we've seen with the Constitution. I'm going to start with the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution. This is the provision that is supposed to limit the government's power to search us. Under American law, the home is supposed to be afforded special legal protection. I think everybody here has probably heard of that idea that our homes are supposed to be our castles, right? Well. The idea isn't that homes can't ever be searched, but they are supposed to be given special protection under the law uh, against the government's power. Uh, a related Fourth Amendment legal principle is uh, something that lawyers call the knock and announce doctrine. And that's the idea that when the police have a search warrant and they're going to search our home, they should first go up to the door, knock, announce their presence and why they're there, you know, where the police we have a search warrant uh, for these premises. And the idea behind that doctrine was to give the homeowners, the occupants of the home, an opportunity to open the door peacefully to then cooperate with the search so there would be no violence. But we're losing this uh, legal principle. Um, the lawyers for the government went to the Supreme Court a few years ago and they said, well, we're in a drug war now. We have to carve out an exception to this knock-and-announce principle for drug cases. Uh, it's very important that we get into a house quick before they can flush drugs down the toilet. We, we, if we wait, you know, the evidence will be destroyed. Now, the Supreme Court did reject that argument. They said, no, this knock-and-announce doctrine is hundreds of years old. It's a very important constitutional principle, and they kind of rejected the government's bid for an exception. But then the government did a workaround. And now what they're doing is they're knocking on the door, so they seem to be complying with it, but then they smash the door down within a few seconds. So as a practical matter, you know, there's very little difference between running up to the door and smashing it down without any announcement, and an announcement, and then three seconds later with the, with the door comes smashing down. 
Now, cases did go back up to the Supreme Court, and they said, look, you know, you said the knock and announce doctrine is an important part of our Constitution. Look at what the government's doing. They're doing this quick workaround. But unfortunately, the Supreme Court has not come to the defense uh, and knocked down these other tactics. So as a practical matter, uh, if you look up the rules, the, the courts will say, yeah, we abide by knock and announce. But as a practical matter, because of these tactics, we have uh, now lost, really, the knock and announce uh, doctrine. Another way in which the government goes around the Fourth Amendment has to do with subpoena power. See, when the government uses search warrants, the, we have a special like check and balance system with search warrants because the power is divided between the executive branch, the police, and the judicial branch, which the judges. Because when the police wanted to search someplace, they would have to fill out a search warrant application and go to the judicial branch and seek approval for it. So it's, it has that check and balance system. If the judge agrees that they've got good evidence, it's all compliant with the Constitution, he'll approve the search warrant and then the search can take place. But if the judge disagrees, if he thinks their evidence is flimsy or based on hunch, innuendo, rumors, he may reject the, the application, in which case a search will not take place. But with subpoenas, it's different. Uh, they do not have to go before a judge to apply for a subpoena. This is something that the executive branch agencies can uh, issue directly on people and businesses uh, themselves without having to go before a judge. Now, it's important to recognize how this has expanded over the years. When J. Edgar Hoover ran the FBI, you know, the Congress would give him just about anything he wanted. If he wanted a bigger budget, they would give him more money. If he wanted more agents, they would give him the authority to hire more agents. But the one thing that he asked for, subpoena power for FBI agents, is something that Congress continually refused to give to him. They said that's just too much power for an executive branch agency. We want you to continue to go to federal judges, apply for search warrants, and then your searches can take place. In the 1980s, though, Congress gave the DEA uh, subpoena power, administrative subpoena power. And so they started exercising it for years. And then what happens is another thing comes along, a crisis like 9-11, and then the FBI goes to Congress and makes the argument, the DEA has subpoena power for drug investigations. Shouldn't the FBI have subpoena power like they calling it national security letters, shouldn't we have that power for terrorism investigations, which are obviously more serious? And uh, Congress couldn't resist that argument. So with the Patriot Act, the FBI then gets uh, a, a subpoena power. So now we have many executive branch agencies using subpoenas for all types of situations, increasingly in the place of search warrants. Stop and frisk. This is another power that the police have assumed over us. This is a police tactic where pedestrians are detained and searched on city sidewalks. Uh, they're most famously used by the police in New York City. It was, it was championed by uh, Mayor Rudolph Giuliani when he became mayor there. And the number of stop and frisk tactics and uh, the number, in, uh, number of cases in which these tactics were used steadily increased over the years. Now, we all know about TSA searches, and they are a pain, and there's lots of problems with them. But stop and frisk is 50 times worse than what we see by the TSA at airports. Because at least with an airport, with these searches, you know, we kind of know what to expect. We know when we go to the airport, it's going to happen. You can kind of brace yourself for it. 
or you can you know, make alternative arrangements and maybe travel by train or, or make a decision not to travel at all. But imagine what it's like to live in the city where you know, going to work, uh, going to a movie, going to meet a friend for lunch or dinner, and uh, then your afternoon is abruptly interrupted by police agents who stop you and want to frisk you and tell you to put your hands against the wall or maybe even take you to the ground as they, they go through your pockets and, and belongings. This is a type of a tactic, a police tactic, that I don't think would really be tolerated in middle-class suburbs. There would just be such a big outcry over it that the police would back off. But the tactics are mostly used against poor, poor sections of cities, uh, mostly involving minorities. And we sometimes, you know, there are their uh, complaints, uh, the cries of police harassment, but they tend to be written off because these people just do not have uh, political power. But nevertheless, it is a power that the police uh, have assumed over us. And there, sometimes, you know, courts will invalidate a search here or there. But by and large, these uh, stop and frisk tactics are still being used all the times uh, in cities around the country. I also have to say a word about civil asset forfeiture. This is where the police are able to seize property from people without having to convict them of a crime. Now, this is different from criminal forfeiture. Criminal forfeiture is after somebody's been convicted of a crime, they're like, all this property that you have in your house you know, is a result of theft. So the government takes that back after they've convicted somebody. Uh, but civil asset forfeiture is where the government is able to seize property from people in the civil law without having to convict people of a crime. And it is used to seize cars, boats, and homes from people but also cash from people's wallets and purses. There was a story that appeared in the press uh, a year or two ago of a young man who left his home in Michigan, and he was going to Los Angeles to start a, a career in the, in the music industry. And he had been saving his money for years. And then his mother decided, you know, to, as mothers do, help him out by giving him two or $3,000 to help him get started when he went to Los Angeles. Uh, so he got on a train, and he didn't get very far. Uh, one of the stops, DEA agents came on board the train, and they went through, and then they asked him for per permission for them to go through his belongings and his backpack, and that, that's when they discovered the cash. And he explained that he was going to Los Angeles to start a new career, and they said, no, we, we think this is drug money. You're going to a drug location, Los Angeles. <laughs> and... And uh, he tried to get his mother on the phone to explain to him the, the, you know, his situation, uh, but the, the agents weren't having any of it. And he said, you know, if you take all my money, I'm not even going to be able to get back home. Uh, and they just shrugged, and then they left the train with all of his cash. And uh, some fellow passengers who were witnessing the whole thing felt sorry for him, and, and they were actually gave him some money so that he could get back home. But the government often re recognizes that they've got people over a barrel uh, when they see small amounts of money, because then in order to fight to get it back, you have to hire a lawyer, go to court, take time off you know, from your work to go and fight, and how many people are going to do that over small amounts of money? So the, the government knows they've got people over a barrel. So these, there's lots of abuses in this area. My colleague, Adam Bates, went to uh, Oklahoma to testify before legislative committees there to have those laws reformed. And our friends at the Institute for Justice are also doing a lot of good work in this area. They've got a good report called Policing for Profit, 
where they grade all of the states on um, their forfeiture laws. Double jeopardy. This is something most Americans have heard of. You know, it's that idea that you can be uh, protected against the government prosecuting you twice for the same offense. But in the drug area, this is a special area because we've got overlapping federal and state laws. And the Supreme Court has said, well, a double prosecution in this context is okay because we're dealing with two governments, the federal government and the state government. So we've got overlapping laws, and so double prosecutions are possible. They don't happen that much, but when you look at the way in which the laws are enforced, imagine the pressure to plead guilty in these cases because the prosecutors will go to people and say, you better take this deal because even if you go to trial and win, I'll tell my friends on the Federal Drug Task Force, you know, to prosecute you again under federal law where the penalties will be even higher. So attorneys will often advise their clients that, you know, if they're dealing with some witness who may lie against them, uh, you, you better take this deal. This is probably the best you're going to get. So double jeopardy is another legal protection that uh, we are losing. Free speech, I know Susan Herman covered this the other day uh, in, a, in a variety of contexts, but it, we have free speech problems in the drug war area as well. Um, 25 states now have changed their laws to allow a medical exception to the strict prohibition on marijuana possession. California started this in 1996 when voters there approved medical marijuana under state law. But the attorney general at the time, Janet Reno, First, they lobbied against it. They, they really tried to get California voters to uh, reject you know, the, the exception for medical marijuana. But after they lost and voters said, no, we want this. We think it makes sense. Uh, a couple of weeks later, Attorney General Reno announced a new policy threatening all the doctors in California to say, you know, if you even think about discussing the pros and cons of using marijuana for medical purposes, we're going to revoke your license and we're going to prosecute you under federal law. Um, now, this was immediately challenged in the courts. And a few years later, the courts did say that this policy was illegal, not only violated basic free speech, but it violated the doctor-patient uh, privilege and the, re the relationship. But it took a few years to get that policy invalidated. And there was all of this uncertainty hanging in the environment back then. And what's most disturbing is that you know it's bad enough when a prosecutor here and there threatens people for speaking out you know, and just exercising their First Amendment rights. But this decision was made at the highest level of our government, the Attorney General and you know, the presidential administration, the White House. And uh, a few years later, it, it was declared to be blatantly illegal and unconstitutional. But they just shrugged and, and, and moved along. I'm about out of time, so let me conclude with a final point. Sometimes people on the left and the right say that Cato is fighting uh, you know, for the right to get high. <laughs> yeah. That is such a, an ignorant thing to say. It is so misleading. In addition to you know, the legal standards and safeguards that I've just touched upon, many lives have been lost because of the drug war policy. Um, Veronica Bowers and her daughter Charity were killed when their plane was shot down over Peru. The CIA and a Peru Air Force jet thought that they were about to kill smugglers, 
But they were even wrong about that, and they ended up killing a family of American missionaries. Outside of Atlanta, a few years ago, uh, a SWAT team threw a flashbang grenade in the window of a home. It landed in a baby's crib and exploded. Um, we have this uh, raid map on the Cato website where we document a lot of these uh, drug raids gone wrong where, where people are injured and, and killed. It happens uh, too frequently. Milton Friedman said that America's drug policy is responsible for the deaths of tens of thousands of people, mostly in Latin America. So the war policy has been a nightmare. That's why we work this issue so hard, by publishing books and studies, uh, critiquing it, by going on TV and radio to speak out against it, and why we testify before legislative committees to urge policymakers to bring the drug war to an end. Thank you. It's true, of course, Tim, that the drug war raises uh, far weightier issues, but there's nothing wrong with fighting for the right to get high. Uh, our next speaker is Dan Ikenson, who's director of the Center for Trade Policy Studies, the Herbert Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies. Uh, uh, hmm? Ace. Herbert East. Yes. Uh, this is a position uh, uh, that I once held at Cato, uh, so I know from personal experience that being a professional uh, free trader in... Uh, in D.C. is kind of like being Bill Murray in Groundhog Day. <laughs> this, so 240 years ago now, Adam Smith fairly effectively demolished uh, the major economic arguments for protectionism, and yet they just keep coming up again and again and again and again. And now with, uh, with uh, turbocharged virulence uh, from, uh, I'll, I'll just call him Donald Trump rather than all the horrible names that are popping into my head. Um, <laughs> So, uh, so right now is a time in which uh, free trade and open markets are uh, on the defensive in, uh, uh, in a way that, uh, and to an extent that they've really never been before uh, or haven't been in many, many decades. Uh, we've had no uh, presidential candidate uh, since uh, the Great Depression uh, that has run on an overtly protectionist platform. Uh, we've got one now. Uh, so uh, the stakes are high. Uh, meanwhile, uh, uh, one of the major uh, <clears throat> vehicles for liberalizing trade, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, has become a political football uh, and has become an, uh, an issue of, uh, sort of dispute and, uh, and uncertainty amongst uh, free traders. Uh, trade deals have a lot in them besides uh, trade liberalizing elements. They've got a fair amount of uh, crony capitalism and, uh, and favors for uh, for. Uh, politically powerful constituents smuggled into them. Uh, so it's not always straightforward to figure out whether these deals are a net plus or net minus. Uh, Dan uh, will uh, walk you through his analysis of, uh, of how the TPP passes free trade muster. Thank you, Brink. Brink, you, you've, you've stolen my thunder. Basically, everything I was going to say was just mentioned there. So, so let me traipse into, uh, let me say, uh, you've got to fight for your right to party. We can do, we can do it that way. Uh, I'm really happy to talk to you about, about trade. I've been here for 16 years, and this, it has never been so topical as it is this year. Unfortunately, it's for, you know, for bad reasons. It's uh, been badly maligned. Uh, there are a lot of fallacies circulating uh, in the political debate. Uh, there's been a lot of opposition to the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, which has produced all sorts of stories about what is likely to happen to us uh, if this agreement goes forward. 
you know, in, in, including uh, ill effects on the environment. Uh, it's even going to cause cancer. Uh, so I, I'm going to talk a little bit about that as Brink suggested, but I also want to mention a few other things that are relevant. There's so much to talk about, uh, and it was hard for me to decide what to do. So I'm happy to have you as an audience, not just because there's a lot going on, but you know, because I have an office here, I'm a Cato scholar. We notoriously like to corner people and have audiences. Uh, and, and I also just finished a, a 24 ounce cup of black coffee. So I need, I need to vent a little bit. So let, let me just tell you about our mission, our goal at the, at the Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies. It is to inform the public and, and policymakers about the benefits of free trade and the costs of protectionism. I know. Sounds like we're not doing a very stellar job at the moment, uh, uh, but I'm going to I'm going to uh, apologize for that, and I'm going to explain, you know, what what we're actually up against. Um, when I say advocating for free trade, we we're sort of unique in, in Washington. We really mean free trade, the free trade that you may have heard about this week. Uh, we, we're, we're about opening our markets here. Uh, a lot of business organizations and other think tanks in Washington talk about free trade. They're pro trade. They conflate free trade and pro-trade. They're different things. Uh, but what they mean is opening markets abroad and keeping ours closed so we can use them at our, those, those closed markets as negotiating chits to secure more market access opening abroad. It, you know, Brink mentioned Adam Smith. You know, he, he, he vanquished the mercantilists uh, 230, 40 years ago. Uh, but mercantilism is sort of the guiding beacon of U.S. trade policy. Uh, so uh, does it really matter that we've won the debate? Uh, so anyway, let's talk more about the politics and what's going on. Um, but I'd like to mention that what we do, I mean, we talk about trade liberalization, multilateral liberalization, unilateral liberalization, bilateral agreements, the WTO. We talk about protectionism at home, like the anti-dumping laws and the countervailing duty laws. We talk about the importance of investment and the, the importance of openness uh, in both directions uh, to economic growth. And we write policy papers, we do op-eds, we give talks to audiences like this, um, we go on TV and radio and on, on webcasts, we write books. Um, there are a variety of media through which we you know, try to get our message out there. And I think despite the fact that uh, trade is uh, uh, being so, so badly maligned right now and that people are very skeptical of it, uh, I think we've made a difference. I really do think that, you know, without voices like ours and other organizations, uh, we would already have that 45% tariff uh, that, that, that Donald Trump talks about. Um, trade, advocating the benefits of free trade is a hard thing to do because there is an asymmetry in, uh, in the uh, visualization of the benefits and the costs. Right? It's easy to see a shuttered factory that may be attributable to reduction of a tariff or a U.S. company uh, moving some operations abroad. But what's, what's not seen is the process. It's, what is not seen is the fact that people uh, now have access to lower-priced products, have more money, therefore, to spend on other domestic, domestically or imported uh, produced uh, goods and services, or to save, which is used as investment uh, for entrepreneurs. Uh, so, Jobs might be lost in Indiana when carrier goes to Mexico temporarily, but the benefits uh, be, uh, that, that, that derive from lower cost production uh, will emerge in new jobs in a new industry in California six months later. And it's very hard to make that connection, but it does happen. Um, 
Adam Smith one more time. The, 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 the data are there. The arguments are sound. Uh, for, for, for 240 years, people have tried to poke holes in uh, Adam Smith's theories uh, and with very little success, really no success. Um, so uh, we, we don't need more of that. We need better stories. We need to be better storytellers. I saw somebody on Twitter succinctly wrap it up. He says, we don't need any more Adam Smiths. We need more Don Drapers. And that, that's, that's true. We need to be able to have better imagery. And when I get in debates with people and I marshal the facts and put up the PowerPoint slides, uh, my opponent can just show that picture of the shuttered gate of a factory and he almost wins the debate that way. Um, so what's happened now and, and why we're at this, this stage is that there, there is this persistence of, of myths uh, that have been slain time and time again. And, and like Jason in Friday the 13th, they come back year after year after year. One of the most prominent ones, and this is one you hear from Donald Trump, is this characterization of, of trade as a competition between us and them. It's Team America against Team China, or Team America against Team Mexico, where you know, exports are Team America's points, imports are the foreign team's points, the trade account is the scoreboard. We have a trade deficit, so that means we're losing a trade. And of course, we're losing because the foreign team is cheating. You know, that's, that's the narrative. Uh, but it's, it's so misguided. Trade is not a competition at the national level. It is billions of individual transactions pursued on a daily basis where people are trying to uh, uh, achieve value, parting with as few dollars as possible for as much service or product in return. That's the exact opposite of what the objective is of, of, of trade policy, to open up export markets and have a trade surplus. Here we are trying to obtain trade deficits with, with everybody, everyone with whom we transact. We want more value than we're giving up. Um, trade is not a competition between us and them. In fact, um, if imports are the other team's points, how do we account for the fact that half of the U.S. import value are intermediate goods and capital equipment, products uh, and components used by U.S. manufacturers to produce their products? Uh, Two-thirds of the world's uh, trade is intermediate goods. Uh, so this is speaking of an interdependence. Uh, the factory floor has broken through its walls and spans borders and oceans. Uh, so having tariffs is like 30 years ago putting up a, a brick wall in the middle of the you know, Ford factory in Dearborn. Mm. So we need to recognize that trade is not a competition between us and them. Uh, there is great, uh, a great degree of, in, uh, of uh, interdependence. The second one we hear a lot about is the trade deficit. Oh, the trade deficit means we're losing a trade. The trade deficit, people are familiar with that. I mean, every month the trade statistics come out from the U.S. Census Bureau. Uh, and more often than not, there's a trade deficit. Uh, the economy grew at, you know, 0.1 percent, but uh, maybe it would have been 0.15 percent, but for the trade deficit. It's the wrong way to look at trade. Uh, the trade deficit has nothing to do with trade policy. It has to do with uh, um, differences in uh, patterns of savings and consumption between countries. We've had a deficit for 41 straight years in the United States, yet we've grown magnific magnificently most of those years. Yes, we've had recessions, uh, but we've grown pretty strongly. There is a positive correlation between the size of the deficit and jobs, between the size of the deficit and GDP. Um, so. When, when the deficit is increasing, we are employing more people. Uh, this is uh, a point that's lost 
on the debate. The flip side of the, the trade deficit, when we buy more goods and services from foreigners than we sell to them, they are investing more in the United States than we're investing abroad. The flip side of the trade account, or the slightly broader current account, is the capital account. We have a massive surplus. The reason we do, and the reason we've been running deficits since 1975, is because in 1971, Nixon took us off the gold standard. The world was looking for a reserve currency. Uh, the dollar became the primary reserve currency. This is a safe haven. There's lots of investment here, and we benefit from that dramatically. People talk about this race to the bottom. Oh, with globalization, all this investment is flowing to uh, locales where uh, labor standards are, are poor, where the environment is degraded, where there are no product safety standards. U.S. manufacturing is the number one destination in the world for foreign direct investment. We have over a trillion dollars of investment in U.S. manufacturing. I'm going, to, I'm going to move to that myth in a second. But there is no race to the bottom. There is a competition for investment. You, you get that investment with good policies. Our policies, in, in, in the year 1999, 39% of global FDI was parked in the United States. Uh, by 2012, I don't have the updated figure, uh, it was 17%. Part of that is because the rest of the world is growing and coming online, and that's a good thing. But part of it is because investment's been chased away with uh, you know, uh, contentious regulatory environment, the corporate tax code, which keeps a couple trillion dollars of profits uh, of US multinationals offshore because they don't want to repatriate it and subject it to another round of taxation. There's, there are a lot of bad policies. In other words, we are competing with the, with the world, not for export markets, but to attract investment. And we do that with good policy. And when we choose instead, when policymakers decide to haul people like Tim Cook and other CEOs before committees to berate them for the choices that they've made. Wow. Uh, they, uh, they're, they're, they're playing with fire. There's no reason that these companies need to be here at all. Uh, so they, they, they could go to Gulch Gulch. They could go, they could move offshore and produce everything abroad. So we need to be more, we need to recognize, be more accommodating of that. A trade killed US manufacturing. Um, Manufacturing is thriving. This is a myth that is uh, uh, very disturbing. That it's, it's like there's a whole different set of facts that people feel entitled to use. Uh, US manufacturing sets new records year after year with respect to value added, output, revenues, returns on investment, except, of course, when there are recessions. But the trend has always been going up. Uh, the one area where manufacturing is not doing as well is in jobs. But think about that. Jobs in manufacturing peaked in 1979. Uh, 19.4 million. Today we have about 12.7 million. Um, but we continue to produce more and more output. That, that's, called, that's the definition of productivity growth. You're producing more with less. Um, and we can't conflate manufacturing jobs and the state of manufacturing. Um, job creation is a difficult thing altogether um, because there are, there, 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 there are uh, big, great alternatives. Um, trade is a small cause of job churn. And uh, we, we, we were focused way too much on doing something about trade to protect people who lose their jobs because of trade. Um, there's a, the Economic Policy Institute in Washington has a, an economist named uh, Robert Scott who publishes this report once, sometimes twice a year, which the, the, his methodology has been um, uh, criticized and uh, dispensed with by all experts, yet they continue to produce this because it gets a lot of press and members of Congress get to to chime on about it. Uh, but he attributes certain manufacturing job loss to the trade deficit, uh, state by state by state. 
He even has manufacturing job loss in Washington, D.C., like 1,200 job manufacturing job. There's no manufacturing in, in D.C., except for the occasional meth lab. And, <laughs> um, and okay, my, my time is up here, so I'm going to have to stop before I talk about the, the TPP. Um, let, me, let me refer you to this. We, we, we just finished a paper. It's not published yet. This is an abstract of that paper. Um, we evaluated the Trans-Pacific Partnership. We were skeptical at first because it's not free trade. It's managed trade. It's 30 chapters. Um, we evaluated it chapter by chapter, graded it on a scale of 0 to 10 each chapter, 0 being protectionist, 10 being free trade. We found 50. We were able to grade 22 chapters. 15 of the 22 we found trade liberalizing. Five we found protectionist uh, and two neutral. And overall, uh, the score was weighted average was like 6.4, 6.5. So we're supporting it. We don't want to make the perfect enemy the good. There's no other path to trade liberalization that's viable currently. Uh, obviously, Brink, you know, Brink referred to the, the political stasis here. Both candidates are opposed to it. I'm sure, regardless of who the president is, that the TPP is going to be embraced. And maybe look for my op-eds on that uh, as I continue to, to write about it, because I won't, don't have any more time to talk about it. Thank you. Our uh, final panelist is Alex Naresta, who is an immigration policy analyst uh, here at Cato, uh, which is uh, uh, of all the white hot uh, issues where there's more heat than light, uh, immigration could be uh, at the top of the heat. Uh, we have ongoing competitions amongst Cato staff for who gets the most colorful uh, hate mail. Uh, my guess is that Alex has surged into the lead in recent uh, months. Uh, take it away, Alex. Uh, thank you. I think you're right. I would read some of my hate mail, but there are too many four-letter words for this audience. It's impossible to talk about immigration without showing what the legal system looks like. This is a highly simplified map of the current <laughs> legal immigration system in the United States. Uh, this is only the path to a green card, a permanent residency here, that allows you to eventually become a citizen if you want to. So this excludes all of the other alphabet super visas. Uh, basically, uh, to come here legally... There are four ways to do so on a green card. The first is to be very highly skilled. There's 140,000 slots a year for those folks. Uh, you have to be sponsored by a company. It costs between ten dollars and $35,000 in government fees. Only 7% of you can come from any one country. So if you're Indian or Chinese or Filipino, you have to wait sometimes decades. If you're Icelandic, it's really easy. So that's just the way it works out. It's not a very viable solution. Second way, which is most commonly used, is being closely related to an American. That's about 70% of current green cards are in that category. Uh, the third way is through being a refugee or asylum seeker. About, uh, last year, is about 130,000 people who came in on either of those humanitarian visas. And then there's 50,000 a year for something called diversity visa or diversity green card lottery. Uh, it's only available to people from countries where they don't send many immigrants about 15 million people a year enter this lottery for 50,000 slots, so it's not a very viable way. If you notice, the one category that doesn't exist is a green card for a low-skilled worker who doesn't have any family here. There is no green card available for a low-skilled worker to come here legally and to work unless they're very closely related to an American. So if you apply these laws, this standard, back to the beginning of the United States, virtually none of us would be here today because virtually none of us would have fit, our ancestors would have fit into one of these categories to be able to immigrate here legally. So this is the current system that we are currently working with right now. 
Now, it's my contention that there are basically three different policy, uh, public opinion areas where if they move, this is what determines whether immigration is more closed off, more restricted than otherwise would be. And those three areas are crime, and then terrorism, national security, and economics. And it's my opinion that when Americans start to blame either crime, terrorism, sort of economic problems on immigrants, when I mean, all those things combine is when you get restrictive immigration laws. Uh, in the early 1920s, there was a lot of worry about immigrant crime during the, the eras of uh, prohibition, you know, Italian gangsters and those stereotypes. Uh, there was also a lot of terrorism going on at the time. There were hundreds of bombs blown up by Italian anarchists uh, and communists across the United States uh, in the decade prior to these laws being passed. And there was a depression in the early 20s. So these things, three things combined, I think, to push public opinion in favor of closing off immigration laws. Uh, I do write about culture and assimilation sometimes, but uh, people sort of dislike foreigners for those reasons at uh, the same level over time. It doesn't really change. Um, so I focus, focus mainly on these three topics. Crime. Basically, uh, there's a large, very large literature comparing immigrant crime rates to native-born native American crime rates. Uh, immigrants are less pro crime prone than natives, with very few exceptions, is the general finding of this very vast literature. The one exception is Miami. For some reason, Miami is always an outlier. If you want to take a look at these studies, uh, Miami is a city where more immigration is correlated with more crime. With other cities and other studies across, you find the exact opposite. Now, those are what are called macro studies, where we take a look at cities and how the, immigration, uh, the crime rate in cities are affected by immigrants. There are also studies called micro studies that take a look at incarceration rates and they take a look at the immigration status of people incarcerated in prisons. Now, just uh, I know some of you might be thinking, oh, if you're an immigrant and you're incarcerated or you're convicted of a crime, you're deported, so we don't count you in jail. Now, the way it works is if you're an immigrant and you commit a crime and you're convicted, you serve your time, and then they kick you out uh, almost all the time. So this doesn't get around those problems. Um, basically, when we look at incarceration rates, uh, natives are about four to five times as likely to be incarcerated as immigrants are, controlling for all the other factors in there. So immigrants are far less crime-prone than native-born Americans. Uh, Ann Coulter, uh, in her book, Adios America, uh, which reads like a comment section on a nasty website. Uh, I actually read it. It's, you know, it's Ann Coulter. Um, she uh, has a section denying that these hundreds of studies don't exist and there's no way to know these factors, but uh, that just gives you a taste of how uh, fact-free most of her work is on this issue. Terrorism. We have a big study coming out about terrorism in, recent, in, in the very near future in September. Uh, basically, from 1975 onward, there have been 153 foreign-born terrorists who have committed terrorist attacks on U.S. soil. Uh, of those, tourists are responsible for 94% of the deaths caused by foreign-born terrorists on U.S. soil. That is accounted for by 9-11, which is a uh, gargantuan outlier when you take a look at the destructiveness of terrorist attacks. Uh, when you compare terrorist attacks across history, across countries, by how deadly they are, 9-11 is about 10 times as deadly as the next deadly terrorist attack. So it's quite an outlier. It's not the normal attack, but of course I include those in there. Basically, taking a look at this time period, your chance of being killed in a foreign-born terrorist attack on U.S. soil is about 1 in 3.6 million. To put that in comparison, your chance of being murdered in a non-terrorist homicide is 1 in 14,000 uh, during that time period. 
And a lot of folks are worried about refugees right now, refugees coming from maybe Syria or the Middle East and their ability to commit terrorism. Uh, during this time period, your chance of dying from a terrorist attack committed by a refugee is one in 3.6 billion. There were three Americans killed in terrorist attacks committed by refugees during that time period. So very small probabilities. Uh, there are other issues with national security, but suffice it to say, we can focus more on those issues by having a more, more open immigration system that allows us to focus on actual national security threats. Economics, you all know these stories. Uh, immigrants come in, they lower our wages. It's terrible for Americans. They bring us down uh, and compete us down to the bottom. A uh, whole host of studies, uh, research by reputable economists, the most negative finding that you can find in the peer-reviewed literature is that immigrants uh, basically lower the wages of Americans with less than a high school degree by somewhere around 3.7% for every 10% increase in the size of all workers in those groups. So it's a very small effect. That study also finds that 90% of other Americans, those with more than a high school degree, actually see wage increases due to immigration. Now that might seem kind of weird to you. You know, we have an increase in supply of workers. Why would wages go up? Uh, some of the reasons are, one, immigrants typically have different skills than most Americans. They're either more or less skilled or more highly skilled than most Americans. Most Americans are in the middle, not much competition. Another aspect called complementarity. Basically, because immigrants have different skills than Americans, they don't compete with Americans for jobs. They work with them in the market and in the workplace. So instead of having people compete for jobs, you have more workers. More workers with different skills means more jobs available for everybody. A subsection of that is called task specialization. And you can think of this in terms of uh, what immigrants are good at versus natives. Now, one thing that immigrants don't have when they come here immediately is English language skills. Now, I lived in Europe. Everybody speaks like eight languages there. Uh, that's not the case in America. I only speak one myself. So what you see is immigrants without much language ability in English do jobs that don't require English, manual labor jobs. Immigrant Americans, on the other hand, who may be low skilled, then fill the jobs that require communication. Now, the best example of this is a restaurant. Now, what jobs do low skilled immigrants without language abilities do in a restaurant? Busboys, dishwashers, sometimes the cooks, the jobs that don't require communication with the customers. Now, what jobs do the low skilled Americans do? the waiter, the waitress, the hostess, jobs that pay a lot more. So you have this sort of division of labor according to ability that immigration makes possible because there's so many people on the lower end. So basically, you take a look at all these, and the net effect for wages for most people most of the time is roughly about zero, and we can talk about this more. Welfare costs, this is something I'm and, and fiscal costs, does immigration cost a taxpayer? Generally, poor immigrants are much less likely to use welfare than poor Americans, and when they do, the cost is a lot lower. Immigrants aren't even have access to welfare for the first five years that they're here on a green card. There are some exceptions to that. Immigrants, on average, uh, subsidize the biggest portions of the welfare state, that's Medicare and Social Security, uh, to quite a tune. Basically, if you take a look at all this, um, the net fiscal effect of immigration is roughly zero. Now, what do I do with all this information? That's half of my job, is I argue about this information. I try to get the facts out there. I do lots of debates about this, op-eds, TV, all the usual stuff. Uh, but the other aspect of my job is to try to come up with new immigration reform ideas. How can we improve the system in a new way to produce better outcomes? 
Now, if you remember in 2013, there was this big debate over immigration reform with the Rubio bill. Uh, that bill failed, of course. Uh, it was called a comprehensive bill because it tried to do everything at once. Uh, generally, the idea of a comprehensive bill is dead. Like, it's not going to go anywhere in Congress in the future. But I think one of the reasons it died was that this type of comprehensive bill has been tried like every couple years for a very long time, and it fails every time. And it's basically the same bill every time. So I think that means that our arguments are bad or our ideas need to be updated. So I have worked on three new ideas. One is called a state-based guest worker visa. One is a tiered legalization or a tiered amnesty program. And the other one is to build a wall around the welfare state, not around the country. Now, the easy idea for state-based guest workers is to basically allow states to design and run uh, their own programs in addition to the federal government. Lots of other countries do this successfully. States want to do it, and it works for a whole host of reasons. California and Texas have tried to do this, but they need federal permission to do it. We are the first people in uh, the United States to come up with at Cato a policy analysis detailing how this program would work. Second idea is tiered legalization. Instead of having a one-size-fits-all amnesty where everybody is on a path to citizenship, let the migrant choose. So make it really cheap to get a work permit that they can never use to get citizenship. Make it more expensive to get maybe a green card that they can't use to naturalize, but they can sponsor family. Make it most expensive to get a green card so that they can eventually choose American citizenship. Let them choose, but make it more expensive to become a citizen. Uh, what we know is most of these immigrants will choose non-citizenship. They just want to work. They want to live. They want to be legal and do it above board. The Reagan amnesty in 1986, which was a real amnesty, you basically show up and you get your green card, which allows you to eventually get citizenship. Um, only 45% of those in the Reagan amnesty eventually became citizens. Most of them were happy with the green card, happy just working. And it's my contention that almost all of them, if they were legalized today under this system, would basically choose to be a worker and not not that interested in becoming citizens. They'd want to work legally, maybe temporarily, maybe go back home. And the last one is build a wall around a welfare state, not around the country. You wrote a large paper about this, uh, the identifying the specific American laws that would have to change to make this a reality. It's mostly law already. It's mostly on the books already, but there are a few ways to make this higher and make this more strict, basically only making sure that welfare can go to American citizens and not to people who are foreign born. Uh, this seems like the easiest. So in conclusion, um, I try to argue the facts with a lot of people about immigration, why it's good for the United States. But I also try to supply a lot of new ideas for reforming immigration going forward. Uh, the state-based visa bill and the welfare restrictions idea have been written into legislation uh, on Capitol Hill uh, by other groups or by members of Congress. Uh, Senators uh, Paul, Johnson, Kirk, and Representative Buck and Love are very interested in the state-based visa idea going forward. So I think this idea has some legs. Uh, forthcoming idea, immigration tariffs. So I don't have time to talk about that, but we can maybe do about it in the, um, the Q&A. So thank you. Thanks, Alex. We've got 10 minutes or so for Q&A. Uh, so if you've got a question, come up and uh, speak into the mic. Hi, my name is Adrian Sevilla from uh, San Diego. My question is for Mr. Lynch. Uh, there seems to be a lot of confusion these days among people. They say, you know, I know my rights when they're being searched. Could you speak specifically about what rights we do have 
when we're being searched of our person, our car, or our home? Thank you. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it's hard to encapsulate, you know, very succinctly. But basically, the police are... Most people get searched because the police seek our permission and we give it. They kind of say, you know, do you mind if we search the trunk? Do you mind if I search your backpack? Uh, you haven't got anything to be worried about, do you? So you don't mind if I look, that kind of thing. And the thing to keep in mind is if they're asking you for your permission, then you have a choice about it. You know, it's the same as if the police went to your home and knocked on the door and said, do you mind if I search your bedrooms? Well, you know, most people would be, you know, if it's your home, you'd be like, well, wait a minute. Do you have a search warrant? Uh, it, the same principle basically applies when they're asking you to search uh, a backpack or your purse or the trunk of your car. So if they're asking you, you remember that you can decline and say, officer, I know you're just doing your job, but I don't consent to a search. Um, there's a very good film that's on YouTube, on the internet free, that we highly recommend. It's called uh, 10 Rules for Dealing with the Police. We hosted the premiere showing of that film uh, when it first came out. Uh, and uh, I think Tom had an optional screening of the film uh, yesterday. Um, but, you know, uh, at your convenience, I highly recommend this, rule, this film, 10 Rules for Dealing with the Police, in just 40 minutes, and uh, you can learn a lot. And uh, please don't keep the information to yourself. If you see the film, you think it's uh, worthwhile, Blast it to all your friends on Facebook and, and other, uh, you know, daughters, granddaughters, nieces, nephews, people going to college. Get them to see that film. It's very important. Could save thousands of dollars in legal fees uh, and their liberty. Thank you. Hi, I'm Andres Altrich. I intern here. Um, if not for trade and immigration, on what should low skill workers blame their economic frustrations? Say anyone. Bad domestic policy, um, a failure to recognize that we have a federalist system and we've got 50 states with different competing uh, policies to choose from. So why do you stick with policies that don't create jobs when there are other states that are succeeding? Um, the one example I like to talk about is, is, is investment, foreign direct investment. On a per capita basis, it flows primarily to South Carolina, Tennessee, Alabama, not Michigan, Ohio, or Wisconsin. That's domestic policy needs to change. Uh, those policies that decrease the labor force participation rate, specifically labor market regulations, uh, marginal taxation on workers, and a lot of welfare policies that incentivize people to either underwork or to um, stay out of the labor market for long periods of time. Uh, there is a large bit of literature that looks at what happens um, when you have these regulations in place, like you put in place a law that says you can't fire somebody unless you have to pay them like a whole year's of their salary or crazy laws that they have in Europe like this. And you can pass a lot of these laws in good economic times and you don't really see a problem. Uh, you see a problem when there's a recession, though. And then uh, you sort of get into a cycle where it's hard to get out of it. So I think a lot of workers in the U.S. who have done poorly over the last few decades can blame sort of an accelerating degree of labor market restrictions, regulations, um, and uh, welfare policies for a lot of the problems that they're facing. Thank you. Thank you very much. My name is Brandon Neitz from Colorado Christian University. My question is to Mr. Noraste. Is that, am I saying that right? Yeah. 
Great, thank you. Um, so when we take a look at Europe with the influx of Syrian and other um, refugees from the, from the Middle Eastern conflicts, there have been uh, numerous incidents of terrorism and harassment, such as the um, sexual assault and rape in Cologne and other cities in Germany on New Year's Day. There have been other um, ones that haven't made the headlines of assaults, um, murders, and other attacks, and obviously increasing um, incidents of terror attacks like the one in Nice, um, in Brussels, in Paris, etc. So my question is, um, for the United States, uh, is there credibility to the concerns about bringing in Syrian refugees, um, or are the attacks in Europe due to other factors? How, how should we deal with that issue here in the States? Thanks. So uh, to my knowledge, almost all those attacks have been carried out by uh, Muslims, in, uh, most of them by Muslims in Europe who are European-born, who are usually the descendants of migrants who came in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and things like that. And it points to, I think, one of the biggest differences between the United States and Europe in immigration policy, which is we're still superb at assimilating uh, the children of immigrants and their grandkids, which is a very positive uh, thing for us. I'm not one of these sort of multi-culti, you know, all cultures are equal kind of guys. Like, I like it that people assimilate to our culture. I think it's pretty good, and that's one of our strengths here. And that's for a number of reasons. One of the reasons is you can't get welfare when you come off the boat in the United States, so you have to work. And that means working with Americans and learning how things are done. In Europe, you can get welfare in France after a week of landing there if you're from Tunisia or North Africa. So that's one big uh, problem. As a result, they have very low labor force participation rates, both um, the immigrants themselves and their children. When you take a look at the United States, immigrants are more likely to work than natives. In fact, the labor force participation rate for illegal immigrant men is about 90%, uh, which is um, about 25 to 30 points higher than it is for native-born American men. So we have the exact opposite way of dealing with these folks. Also, just the idea of the European nation-state is really nothing that we've ever had here. Uh, you know, the idea generally in a lot of these countries is like we're all descended from the same tribe, we all have the same heritage, um, so it's very hard to, if you want to assimilate, to get into that culture and be taken as part of it. I have a relative in Norway who's uh, half Norwegian, half Iranian. She was born there, and uh, nobody calls her Norwegian, and they all correct her when she tries to. Uh, here it's the opposite. We're like offended when people don't call themselves American. I, so it's, it's cultural. And, um, you know, the idea of us having like a common sort of ethnic heritage, like just look at our last names. Like that's absurd. Um, <laughs> like the largest ethnic group in America is Germans at about 16%. So. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Sure. Um, so my question's for, for Alex. Um, on the list of reasons that you provided for why people generally don't like immigration or open immigration, I noticed that sort of racial or ethnic concerns wasn't on the list. Um, it seems to me that that might you know, be a factor. I was thinking about the 1924 uh, Johnson-Reed Act when you know, the policy was the amount of immigration uh, allowed after the restriction was delineated based on ethnic categories where sort of the white uh, Anglo Germans were allowed to immigrate a lot more than uh, Eastern, Southern Europeans, and um, there was Chinese exclusion uh, completely. So if there is, um, if immigration policy attitudes on it are shaped by uh, attitudes towards race and ethnicity, and that's a little bit more uh, based on emotion as opposed to facts, how do you go about sort of changing people's minds and uh, with their, their opinion is based on racial bias? So I do think those restrictions in the past that you mentioned uh, were heavily influenced by uh, racist attitudes at the time. I think that those are far less prevalent 
uh, today by comparison to what they were uh, 90 years ago or a century ago or even 50 years ago. So I think it's a smaller role today than it has been probably at any point uh, in American history in terms of determining these things. Uh, Now, if we had had this discussion like a year ago, um, I probably would have said that it plays, you know, a microscopic role in the United States. But given my experience with hate mail since um, the rise of a certain candidate and the specific comments uh, surrounding uh, my skin color or my supposed ethnicity that they make up, uh, I'm not quite sure. There's a large literature. The consensus is that somewhere around 20% of anti-immigration feelings is wound up in feelings of like xenophobia that are partially ethnic or racial based. But I I think it's much more appropriate to talk about the concerns where I can actually talk about the facts and change people's minds. I, I don't think it does much good to highlight that unsavory part that a minority of people use as their reason for opposing immigration. Interesting. Well, thanks so much. Thank you. We have come to the end of our time here. Uh, Thank all of you for attending. Thank the panelists for their contributions.